I was taking a seminary class uh, a few years ago. It was a, in the doctoral class. There was a small group, and so we went around the room, and the teacher wanted us to introduce ourselves and say, hey, tell us a God story about some sort of big deal where God intervened. The winning story is this one. A pastor and his wife were driving to Los Angeles, and their car just died out in the desert, 25 miles west of Blythe, California. Now, if you know where Blythe, California is, I'm sorry. If you've ever been there, if you know where, it's, it is absolutely dead center of nowhere. The Chamber of Commerce, they say this, you can see hell from here. That's all they brag about. And the only thing worse than being in Blythe is being 25 miles outside of Blythe wishing, wishing you were in Blythe. That's how bad things were for this pastor and his wife. He knew a little bit about cars. He opened the hood, and uh, this is before cars had electronic ignition systems, whatever that means. Uh, Actually, I do, but but there's a canister in the old model where a distributor distributed the the electricity to the various spark plugs on time. And inside of that distributor, there was an item that, that connected the electricity from the car to the terminals that went to the various spark plugs, those were called points. They were kind of in a, in a V shape and they would touch and they would touch the points together and it would cause, allow this electricity to go through. Now at that point, there were two little knuckles, two little knobs, and that's where all the electricity was flowing through. It wasn't uncommon, you know, for, for points to kind of get burned up eventually. He suspected that's what it was. He opened up the distributor cap, looked down in there, and his points were not burned. They were broken off. Okay, one was kind of melted, and the other one was completely gone. And so he looked at his wife and said, we're going to die. <laughs> and his wife said, oh, honey, we, we'd better pray. And he said, that's not how cars work, honey. <laughs> and she said, look, 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 just, just we're going to pray, put the gizmo inside the gizmo, and start the car. So he put the points inside the distributor, turned the key, and it started. No, and so he just yells at his wife, get in the car! <laughs> and they drive to Blythe 25 miles across the desert. They pull into a mechanic, and the mechanic opens the hood, looks underneath there, and pulls the distributor cap off, and he goes, oh, my goodness, you got here just in time. I mean, your points are not burned. They're completely broken. One of them is completely gone. It doesn't even exist. And the pastor said, yeah, I, I know. We've been driving 25 miles on those points. And the mechanic said, that's not how cars work, honey. (laughs) The pastor said, I want those points. He said, they're good for nothing. I want those points. So he gave the pastor the points. He mounted them to a plaque in his office, and the plaque says, better pray. He says, I look at that plaque all the time. Hard times at church, hard times at work, hard times with family and relationships, and I just stare at those points and I hear my wife, God knows something about auto mechanics, we'd better pray. That's the phrase of a person that understands the nature of God. If you want to become like Christ in all of life, in some respects, it can be simple. It's not easy, but it's, it's as simple as having two phrases regularly running around in your head, constantly, constantly at work in the way you think, in the way you view all of life. Two phrases define who you are in many respects. One is, what does the Bible mean? 
When a person regularly says without even thinking, what does the Bible mean or what does the Bible say about something, that means that person's just automatically using the Holy Bible as the supreme expression of God revelation to us about life and how it works. When a person is regularly going to the Bible as a resource of how to define what is right and real and true, when a person says, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? It means they have decided what is the ultimate expression of truth. That's one of those things that we have to have in our minds. The other one is when a person instinctively says without thinking, knee-jerk, impulsively responds with, I'd better pray, That person sincerely believes that God intervenes in everyday living. A person that constantly goes to, I'd better pray, believes that, sure, God is in charge of this giant meta-narrative that has an ultimate climax with God's justice and peace forever and eternity. But this person also believes that that God is involved in everyday life and, and, and makes his providential power known to us and seeks that we would seek him. And so a person that says, what does the Bible mean and better pray? That person is very much on the trail to becoming like Christ in all of life. That's why I want to talk to you today about the saint in the Older Testament called Nehemiah. You can turn in your Bibles if you want there. It's a couple books before Psalms. And I love this story. It's just going to be a big survey of his life in many respects. But I want to tell you about him for at least three reasons. One is, Nehemiah is very, I don't know, secular. Okay, he, like here at Grace, we say this a lot. I'm just the pastor, but you're the the ministers. Right, because we have this value that there's a priesthood of all believers, and you're to do the ministry out there. I'm a player coach. You're you're the player out there. Well, Nehemiah, he's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a pastor. He's a regular guy. He holds three different job descriptions, but none of them are like, sacred. They're all secular. He's going to be a government worker. He's going to be a construction contractor. And then ultimately he'll end up as a politician or a governor. All of those things in that context of very earthy, very concrete ways of living life. Second reason I love studying him is he is a saint. He's going to appeal to the revelation of God and the writings of Moses, and he's going to constantly say, better pray. He's going to bring God into every aspect of his life and all the emotions. The third reason I want to talk about Nehemiah today is because our high school and junior high ministries, our youth program, studied Nehemiah and this epic of the Bible all summer long. As a matter of fact, this summer they went to camp and they rebuilt the temple out of cardboard boxes at a worship service that you wish you went to. Look at this. Is that amazing? I want to be 17 again, kind of, not really, but I want to to go to that camp. All right. Here's the context of Nehemiah, which is critical to understanding. In the history of Israel, uh, there this is after, you might know about David and, and Solomon and the kings that follow, and then there's a civil war in Israel. And then for decades, Judah, the southern tribes, they are rebellious towards God and completely ignore him. And God's trying to get their attention by allowing a discipline to come upon them. And Judah is disciplined by a group called the Babylonians. The Babylonian empire comes and they attack Jerusalem, the capital city. And this, this capital city that's high up on a hill, right? You know about Jerusalem and how it is 
at, at one time, it was the showplace of the Middle East. It, it was the stronghold and the religious center of Israeli history. It was the culmination and the peak, not just topographically, but also spiritually for Israel. The Babylonians pummel this town. They absolutely destroy it. They take and tear the walls down and even burn the stones that the wall was made out of. Now, to add insult to injury, they also obliterate the worship center, the glorious temple of Solomon. Solomon built, you know, he's famous for that, right? But, but by destroying this and taking the precious uh, uh, possessions of that and putting it into ashes, it humiliates the people of Israel, the people of faith. So just to be clear, it's not just physical, it's emotional and spiritual. The people of of Judah, they feel vulnerable and they're very afraid. Of course they do, because this mighty city that is up on a hill where everyone can see, they can see that it's totally exposed and they are defenseless. And I would say maybe even more importantly, that the people are shamed. This is an honor-based culture in the Middle East, still is. They have no honor. They have only stories of their humiliation. And even deeper, they are alone. They have been left by God. They are all by themselves. The progression or story continues. This is the Babylonian conquest. Persia defeats the Babylonians, and in that conquest, they allow Israel to return back to Judah, back to Judah or particularly Jerusalem. That's where Nehemiah picks up. In his first job description, he's a government worker. He is working for the king, Artaxerxes, more about that later, but he's the cupbearer or the, the food taster to King Artaxerxes, a very trusted position. His brother goes to Jerusalem and then comes back to Nehemiah and gives him a reconnaissance report. That's where we pick up Nehemiah, chapter 1, hearing that report in verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. There's the shame part. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah is looking at them and experiencing it in himself, great grief and tremendously deep sorrow. And what does he do with that grief? He responds like he will his whole life. He'll say, better pray. Now, this sermon, I'm kind of trying to help you say better pray all the time after we leave. So we're going to practice as we're together. Every time you see this in the slides, you're gonna, we're all going to say with enthusiasm, better pray. Ready? That's what he says. Better pray. This is what he does after he hears from his brother. And when I heard these things, I sat down. He collapses and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And the next section of scripture is his longest prayer. With great insight, we can look at this, listen and look for how he prays in this, sta- in this state of grief and despair. He's going to talk about God. I've capitalized all the pronouns so that we know who he's talking about. Look how he thanks God, he, how he thinks about God, look, think of, and look how he enjoys, he's appealing to God's love and promises. Here we go. O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants and your people of Israel. I'm appealing to his goodness. That's what he's having. I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, that we've committed against you. For we have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. We know what you are, you know, the, what the Bible means, and we have not done those things. He repents on the part of the people. But I want, to, I want you to see, what does he do with the energy of this grief and sorrow, right? He, he doesn't, he fully enjoys it, right? He collapses, he weeps, he prays. Those are all good things, right? And I don't know if you've had experiences with, with tremendous sorrow and how, how that that event triggers good and healthy and truthful emotions that are despairing and full of tears and like tears from the soul. And that's a good thing. And there are times where we can find ourselves kind of trapped in those, in that, that aura of grief. It, it, the despair goes too long. And goes too deep. And then it starts to dominate us. And sometimes it can even define us. And somehow, when this happens, it's it's easy. Somehow, it's not about that event anymore. It's about us. Now now we're all talking. It's always about me being sorrow-filled. And it doesn't happen in Nehemiah. I mean, what if we took the energy of that, of that darkness, right, of that fullness of life experience, good and bad, what if we took that energy and, and moved it out, not in, and it's not about me anymore, and we move it out, not out, just, not just out, but up. What if we moved it up towards the glory of God? That's what, that's what Nehemiah does with this grief. He talks about the love of God, the nature of God to keep his covenant promises. He talks about the goodness and the power of God. And when that happens, you feel, you feel the, the fullness of the experience of the depth of these dark and sorrowful emotions, but you don't stay there. Now you're enamored with the presence of God because that's where you're spending all of your energy. That's what, that's what Nehemiah does. And now he's defined not by one who's been knocked down and stayed down, but the righteous man that gets up. He's the one who has gotten up and has learned to live and walk with a limp. That's what Nehemiah does. The next kind of story in this storyline is kind of a classic story tale of what a minister has to go through in life. He has to talk to his boss about life. And to fully, you know, grasp what what this means for this man, Nehemiah, let's talk about his title and who he works for. He's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Cupbearer. That means he is most trusted in the kingdom because if you want to kill a king, you poison him. Okay, it's just easy stuff. You poison him. And so how does a king prevent that from happening? He has a food tester. That's what, that's what Nehemiah is. He's the food taster. It has to, he has to eat it first and then pass it on. How do you get past the food taster? You bribe him or you extort him or you take his kids hostage or whatever it might be. Nehemiah is trusted with the life of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. Let's talk about him because he's insane. Like 
way crazier than you think about what crazy is. He's super paranoid, maybe rightfully so. His dad was killed by an insider in his own palace. So he's going to be especially nervous about people on the inside trying to take his life. But I mentioned he was crazy, right? He's, he's, he's so volatile in his anger that one time he literally had the ocean beaten with hot rods, hot irons, because, because a storm wrecked part of his fleet. So he beat up the ocean. And so there was kind of there was a lot of rules about Artaxerxes. You know some of them about Esther. You can't just show up to a meeting, you know, unannounced. But one of them is certainly true, and that is you never, ever show up to work, you know, in a bad mood. You don't show up feeling sad. You are happy and good all the time. And Nehemiah is in this place for three months. He's been carrying the weight of, of his nation in despair, and then one day he can't put on the face anymore, and he gets caught. That's Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought to him, I took the wine, and I gave it to the king, and I'd, and I'd not been sad in his presence before because I could be killed. So the king asked, he said, why, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Is there, is there nothing but sadness in your heart? It says, I was very much afraid. He's not afraid he's going to be fired. He's afraid he's going to be decapitated. So, he says, you know, not I was afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when, when the city of my fathers, where the fathers are buried, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The whole palace pauses. Okay, first of all, you show up with a frown, and then you tell him why. What are you doing? And then the king, Xerxes, or Xerxes says, and the king said to me, uh, well, what is it that you want? Okay, everybody's so cool. okay, nobody move, nobody move. And here's, here's what happens. Here's what he does. In this context, in this scenario, when he's having to conf- ask his boss for a favor, here's what, here's what Nehemiah does. Say the words better pray. I got to tell you, he thinks prayer is going to help. That's not how this king works, honey. But this is what he does. He says, verse 4, so, so I prayed to, to the God of heaven. And he, he asked God for favor in the king's eyes. And, he, and so there's what he says in verse 5. And I answered the king, if it, if it pleases the king, and if, you're, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. And you know what happens? Because he decided to pray about this, he chose a better pray. A God thing happened. A miracle happened. Artaxerxes looks at him in his sadness and says, okay, sure, yeah, you should go back to Judah. And you know what? I'm going to give you a military escort just in case, you know, there's some trouble. And here, take my credit card in case you need to spend some money. Oh, and when you're going there, you might drop by my forest and consider, you know, taking some of the trees because you might need those to rebuild your city. Love you, Nehemiah. And everybody went, what? I don't know. Better pray. What if God was still working in everyday lives, even with crazy kings? A number of years ago, I was teaching at a mother's of preschool little thing, and 
after I did my talk, there was a question and answer, and a young mom stood up and said, hey, my husband, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know if I should talk to him about it, but he works all the time. He's getting ground into powder. He leaves before sunrise. He gets home after everybody's in bed, and we're all exhausted. I don't know what to do. And I looked at her, and I said, uh, and then a woman next to him, the mentor at that table says, well, we'd better pray. And then she said, that's not how my husband's boss works. She said, we're going to pray anyway. Whole table circles around her, prays for her. Next week she comes back. Uh, I even didn't even tell you how the story ends. She comes back and says, you're not going to believe what happened. It was a God thing. My husband got pulled into the boss's office, and the boss said, hey, you work all the time. Didn't you just have a child? I want you to work less and spend more time at home. Is that going to be okay for you? It was okay for him. Better pray. God's still working. Chapter 4. Now Nehemiah is no longer a government worker. He is he's the construction contractor. He's, he's looking at Jerusalem, and they, need, they have a lot of work to get done. And he fires up everyone and says, let's build this wall. And because they see the wall being restored and the hope of the people of Yahweh God coming back online, the evildoers and the enemies of God's people start realizing they'd better do something about this. And they start mocking and ridiculing the people of God. How does this construction worker deal with mockery and humiliation? Here's what happens. Okay. When, when Sanballat heard Sanballat, you know he's a bad guy, right? What a name like that. He didn't have a choice. Okay, when Sanballat heard about the rebuilding of the wall, he became furious. He knew what was at stake and was greatly incensed. So he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Syria, he said this. He says, look at those feeble Jews. Look at what they're doing. Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices again? Will they finish in a day? Can, this, can, these, can they bring these stones back to life from, from the heaps of, of the rubble? They burned, aren't they? And then Tobiah, okay, his, his buddies, is an Ammonite standing next to him. And so he jumps in. He goes, oh, what are they, gonna, what are they building? If they, if they built a fo- if, if what they built, a fox climbed upon it, would it not break down their wall of stones? They're talking trash to the people of God. And, and Nehemiah sees that it's going to cause despair and shame to the people. And so guess what he does? Guess what he says? He says, better pray. And so he prays, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over to plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they throw insults in the face of the builders. Can you pray like that? Nehemiah did, and he's a man of God. Can you pray for justice? You can it's a good thing. Here's what happens. A God thing happens. A great thing happens. And so the people, so, so we rebuilt the wall until it reached the half of its height for the people worked with all of their heart. You pray this and you get it done. You ever feel this way towards the way people like mock the great and almighty God and even particularly Jesus and for what he's done? I, have you seen artists They get notoriety, fame, and great income because they mock God and Jesus 
and his love, I, you, they, they create art like with the crucifix and put it in indescribable places so that every, all, the, all the right people will go, oh, isn't that something? And you're boiling angry. Yeah, good, great. What are you going to do with that, though? I saw a few years ago, I was watching this uh, magic team doing something in Las Vegas. I read about it, and, and the culmination of their show, it climaxes, again, with a crucifix scene in a vile and disrespectful way. The crucifix, the greatest expression of God's love for mankind, right? And they, make, they do this with it to get a couple of laughs? I punched the desk. I got up, and I was like, where's my sling? i got to go kill some giant... And in that moment, I just felt like, and God said to me, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Matt, that's in the New Testament too, you know. And I just went, right, right. Better pray. Now, I see these celebrities and politicians throwing their stuff out, mocking the holiness of God, and I just, I better pray about it. God, did you just see that? And he says, yes, Matt. Got it. And here's the thing. Knowing that, I can move on. I can move on to what God wants me to do. I can get back to building the wall. And just as I put off my grief and sorrow by finding myself in the presence of God and who he is and how great he is, I can bring injustice into that same throne room and say, done. Now, let's enjoy our living together becoming like Christ in all of life. Can you do that? You can. You better pray. A revival takes place. All things are looking good for Israel. And because of that, there seems to be an obvious momentum change. And so the people that are angry at God and are enemies of God, they have got to do something now. And it needs to be a show of force, and it needs to absolutely put to death any hope of the future. And so this is what happens. Sanballat, the, band, the bad guy, Tobiah, his assistant, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard about the repairs of, to Jerusalem's wall and had gone, that they'd gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed and they were very angry. And so they plotted together. Now they're con consolidating. They're plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir trouble up. There's great fear that's going on now. Are you, can you imagine? Not just one or two countries. They're all working together, and they're gonna, they are going to absolutely make a point here. And what do you do when you're afraid? What, do, what happens when you're just the contractor on some shift and you are scared for you and your people? Here's what Nehemiah does better pray. That's what he does. But I prayed to our God, and I posted a guard day and night to meet the threat, prayer and action. And after I looked over things, and I, I stood up, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Let's focus on that. He is great and awesome, and he and, and, and he is here, and, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. That's what he says. Let's pray about this. And he receives encouragement, courage from the Lord. And you know what happens? A God thing happens. That's what happens when you pray. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each one of us to our own work. What do you do when you're afraid? 
What do you do when you're consumed with what you used to think you could control is now expanded to the point where you can't control it? What do you do with that? Not afraid? Let me, let me give you like a recipe to how to become afraid. Do this all the time. Here's what you do. Pick the thing that you most value. It could be, it could be your health. It could be your finances, your reputation, a relationship, a child. Pick that one thing. Now just think out into the future five years. That's not very far. Five years. Uh, you know what? Just make it four. It doesn't t- just four years from now. And while you're thinking four years out about that most valued thing, consider all the evil and suffering that could happen to that most valued thing. Part three, just meditate on all of those possibilities. Just let it simmer. And now you don't have to sleep ever again. (laughs) I do that. I regularly do that. And I've learned over the years, because of Nehemiah's leading, that the sooner I get to better pray, the sooner I can put a stop to that. Jesus, in his sermon on better pray, ends with this, with all this compulsive worrying. He says, just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he's, it's, it's, it's comical. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has worries all by itself. Let it worry about itself. Today, today has enough worries of its own. <laughs> Jesus says, just pray about today. Today. You don't have to think about four years out, five years out. Just think about, let's just get to sunset. Oh, okay. I can do that. Good. I know. That's all you can handle. Let each day, each day has enough trouble. Better pray. Chapter five and six, new title, new job. Still same old stuff. He's a politician now. He's a governor. The walls are going up. Things are looking good, but he looks into the souls of the people, and they're still in great despair. Does some homework and realizes it's because of financial ruin that they find themselves in, and that is heavy on a heart. And he finds out even deeper with some investigation that it's as as a result of, of people being not just in poverty, but in great debt. And so as the governor, as the politician, as the governor and ruler of the province, Nehemiah does this. He says, I will lead sacrificially, courageously. And he finds out who the lenders are and says, shame on you. And he kind of, you know, aren't you afraid of God charging these huge interest rates? From now on, the loans are 0% interest, right? Because it's our family. We're all Jews here. And so he makes this moratorium of financial justice, enforces financial justice. And then, because he's a leader leading sacrificially by example, he says this, I have a governor's salary that I'm not going to take. And I have a governor's food salary that I'm going to share with everyone. Wouldn't you love a politician like that? (laughs) Oh, gosh, I'm ready to follow that guy or girl. So anyway, so that's what he does. And it's interesting. Maybe it's just Nehemiah. Maybe it's just Nehemiah and me. But he's been living sacrificially and generously for a long time, and it's, you, he's kind of wondering, does it even count, right? I mean, the other guys, the other governors, they took the money and the food, and he's wondering, mm, maybe that was a bad choice. I won't write that next check. And instead of doing that, guess what he does? Better pray. Look what he says. He prays this. 
Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. Can you pray that? You can. You can. There are times when in a weak moment, at the end of some generosity, or you wonder if anybody else is even playing or if any of it counts, you'll find yourself thinking, does any of this matter? And you can pray this prayer. Dear God, are, are you, did you just see that, God? And he says, yes, Matt, you gave $1,000 to a water well in Africa. Okay, now I can move on. I'm in the presence of God, and he's taking note. That happens. Last, remember, put a bow on this thing, okay? The, chapter 6, heavy tolls are taken on our leader. That's what happens. It, it, that's what leadership means. It is death by the thousand paper cuts. It is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it doesn't seem like a lot here, but it's at the end of things. And Nehemiah is at the end of his, at the end of his like, right, energy level. And what the, the bad guys are realizing, he's the key to the success of this wall being built. And so they're going to try to kill him. And they send him four letters to meet in, I don't know, called the the Plain of Ambush. I mean, who would go to the Plain of Ambush anyway? Actually, the Plain of Ambush, the name of it is the Plain of Oh No. Would you go to the Plain of Oh No? Oh No, you would not go there. He won't go. He says, no, I'm busy building a wall. And then finally, they threaten him with this. They say, look, here's what we're doing. We've already sent out messengers, and this is what we're going to tell everyone in the entire Persian Empire that Nehemiah is the new king of Jerusalem. And when Artaxerxes finds out that you're setting up shop and taking over as a king, he'll do all the dirty work for us. The fifth letter is a threat to bring Artaxerxes in. And Nehemiah does what? Better pray. Better pray. He does this. He's grown weak. He, he can't lift his hands anymore. And he says, I can't finish this work. And so I prayed, now strengthen my hands. You've got you've, you've to pick me up out of this bed. I can't do another thing, Lord. And guess what happens? A God thing happens. Verse 15, and so the wall was completed in 52 days. 52 days. It's not because he was a pretty good governor. It's not because he was a shrewd construction manager. It's not because he was a pretty intelligent government worker. It was because God did it. And it was such a God thing, everyone knew it was a Yahweh moment. Here's the verse. And when all the enemies heard about this, all surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Who's got the shame now? But because, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God, everyone knew, everyone knew Nehemiah was no regular government worker. He was not an exceptional contractor. He was not a pretty good governor. This was an event that was orchestrated by the providence and sovereignty of God Almighty. And he got to play a part because he's constantly going to better pray. Four and a half miles of wall, Built in 52 days, that can't happen without supernatural help. That wall, it's, part of it still exists today. You go to Jerusalem and say, hey, let's go to the, the, uh, Nehemiah's wall. And you know why they call it Nehemiah's wall? Because it's Nehemiah's wall. It's still there. He didn't build a wall, not just a wall. 
He rebuilt the people. He rebuilt their hope. He rebuilt their identity. Yeah, we're the people of Yahweh that can build a four and a half mile wall in 52 days. Yeah, that's us. That's who we are, the reputation of God. That's who we serve, Yahweh God. How did he prove it? In bricks and mortar, simple stones on top of each other. I'm, I'm trying to, like, push the issue here. This is as secular as possibly could be, right? These three secular jobs building a wall. There's nothing secular in the eyes of God. It's all sacred. The people's souls are sacred. It expresses itself in these job descriptions where Nehemiah chose to be a minister. And it showed itself in the building of this thing, this stacking stones. At this church, 50 years we've been trying to figure out what does the Bible mean and better pray. And most of our greatest God stories have to do with earth. They're earthy stories because that's what God does. The buying of this real estate that we sit on, it's a God story where Better Pray was involved. The, the, the office building across the street, that's a two-hour God story you got to hear about sometime where it started with Better Pray. This building itself, seven different variances from the city of Austin. Yeah, <laughs> you know anything about building in this town? It started with a lot of better prey and a God story. The this, this sanctuary, Live Oak, has a great story of someone giving us a tremendous amount of money because they didn't know it. But they, anyway, it we, it's a God story. Our parking is a funny story. It's a funny God story. While we've been praying for that silly lot to get paved across the street, Echelon built a parking garage. And while we still don't have it paved, the other two echelon buildings have approval to build a parking garage. While we're not doing anything, these other two groups are building parking garages for us. That's a fun little God story. Better pray. Grace, grace, better pray. Better pray. Got an employment issue? What's the answer? Better pray. You're a doctor or you're a mechanic or whatever it is, you can't figure out what's going wrong with a situation, better pray. Temper with, with relationships, people that you love the most, how about stop counting to 10 and better pray. Look, it's, I mean, it's regular stuff. Just like we're starting school soon. Some math assignment, some homework thing that you have to do. Calculus. I, I could not figure out calculus. It's kind of an epiphany math where you either get it or you don't. And I was not getting it. And I just prayed, dear God, what? 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 Standard deviation. And, and then I woke up and I, could, and I understood calculus. Years later, I'm in seminary. It's like Hebrew, dear God. And God said, you got to work harder, man. You're like, you're loafing with the Hebrew. So sometimes it, it doesn't, it's not the answer you think. Sometimes this is not a miraculous story. It's a, you get to studying story. So, so grace, let's be a church that prays, a praying church. We're starting the year. Let's pray. Let's pray our way into that year. Would you join me? Dear Yahweh God, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love to those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open as you hear the prayers of your servants as we pray to you this day, all night, for the people of grace. We confess our sins 
the sins of our country, our city, and our church that we've committed against you, how we have acted wickedly towards you, how we have not obeyed your commands, your decrees, the laws that you've given us, in the Older and the New Testament as well. Lord, we desire to become like Christ in all of life, in all of our relationships. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us see ourselves the way you have, that it is your sovereign providence that have put us in this place at this time, in this neighborhood, in this workplace, in our friends, in the acquaintances that you bring into our lives, that we would see ourselves as ministers. Lord, I particularly lift up our, our uh, school employees, the teachers, I, and the, the bus drivers and the superintendents, that they would see themselves and, as an instrument of your good character, your love, your justice, that they would see those students as hearts to be transformed, that they would see that they are influencing a civilization. Lord, I lift up uh, our parents to you that they would look around and see not just their own students, but those in, in the classrooms and the teachers that will be teaching their children, that they could serve those teachers and encourage those teachers, that they would be a source of energy and love. Lord, we lift up the students themselves on every campus, in every room, in every cafeteria. There are countless faces of human souls that are looking to be known, to be valued. And I'd, I'd lift up every student that we have in our, at Grace, that they, the seniors would look at freshmen as not an annoyance, but rather as a ministry. That eighth graders would look at sixth graders as someone to care for and serve. That every kid would look in his classroom and say, where's that one that you brought me? that I might serve you by loving them. Lord, I'd ask that we would be a church that serves, a church that prays, and a church that seeks your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.